Today I'd like to talk to you about a subject that I'm sure you've heard at least a dozen times since I've been your pastor, and that's the power of Scripture. That's the authority of Scripture. It's the truth, the perfectness, the purity of Scripture. And it's what we have to rely on. It's the only thing we really have to rely on here on earth. The other things are might be aids or helps, but the Word of God is what we uh, uh, lean on very heavily. So I'd like to talk to you about the uh, uh, subject of Scripture and Scripture alone. I'm going to give you an overview today. I want to cover seven points. It'll be pretty fast. Number one, God's Word is inspired. It is pure, it's perfect, it's infallible. Number two, God promised to preserve his word, and that includes into the 21st century. Number three, Satan hates God's word and will question it, pervert it, and deny it at every turn. Number four, men will add to God's word. They'll do it in the form of traditions and revelations. Number five, God's word is our only authority. It is our only rule of faith and practice. That's actually one of the covenants in our articles of faith. God's word is our curriculum. It is to be studied, defended, and exalted, and that is what I'm supposed to teach from. Number seven, God's word is the standard by which all teachings and practices are measured. We don't use grandpa. We don't use um, a church down the road. We don't use Dr. Phil, Oprah, um, anything like that. Scripture is what we hold the teachings accountable. Okay, it should be something that uh, um, should be pretty common to all Christians, but absolutely it's not. It's really what the thing that sets Baptists apart from most other denominations. There'll be decrees that are made from popes or councils or conventions, and those will be the authority that's passed down to the church. And to that I say, no, Scripture is our authority and only Scripture. So that being said, I'm going to do something silly with you, okay? Just to kind of stress this point, I got a word bank here, and I just threw some things out that I've heard in the past. And I've got some confessions of faith, First London Confession, Second London Confession, Westminster, Second Vatican Council, Southern Baptist Convention. I've got some traditions, whether they come in papal decrees or watchtowers or grandpa's old paths, LDS's apostles or the U.S. Constitution. Yeah. Bible, Constitution, I'm going with the Bible. Got it? Okay. The writings of uh, James Oliphant, Sylvester Hassel. Oh, you can't mean that. Bible, Oliphant, I'm going with Bible. Okay. I want more amens. Amens. Yes. Okay. I don't care if it's Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, Joseph Smith, or Marietta Baker. So what I want to do is... Psalm 119 is a love story about the Word of God. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read some of my favorite 119 psalms and I put a blank in where the Word of God is. See how silly it sounds. Teach me, O Lord, the first London Confession and I'll keep it to the end. Teach me Grandpa's old paths and I will keep it to the end. Doesn't that kind of just make you feel... Doesn't it? Teach me, O Lord, thy word, and I shall keep it to the end. Ah, that has the power. Amen? Okay? This is my comfort and my infliction for the writings of Mrs. 
Mary Baker Eddy hath quickened me. Ooh, right? This is my comfort, my affliction for the Westminster Confession hath quickened me. No, it hasn't. This is my comfort in my affliction for thy word hath quickened me. Amen. How many times have been you been at night reading and got invigorated by reading God's word? Amen. Okay. At midnight I rise and give thanks to thee because of the Second Vatican Council, because of the Second Baptist, or I'm sorry, the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, you may give a lot of thanks for our U.S. Constitution, and I'm thankful for it, and there's no country that's got anything better. But I'd take the Word of God over it any day. Okay? Let my heart be sound in the writings of James Oliphant or George Spurgeon or C.S. Lewis that I not be ashamed. No. It's the Word of God. You see how silly this sounds? But in effect, when we come to other people and we use anything other than Scripture, that's exactly what we're doing. We're drawing from an authority. We're drawing from a resource. We're drawing for something that goes above and beyond anything we have. Amen? That is our standard. Okay, so I'll skip the rest. You've got to get the idea. Okay, God's Word is inspired. These are verses that should be very familiar with. I'm going to 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished. Notice that inspired is that word that means breathe. When you expire, when you perspire, it's talking about breathing. Inspired is God breathed the word. And that's what we have. That's where it comes from. Second witness, Second Peter 1, 19 through 21, no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. For prophecy came not by the will of man, but holy men of God spake, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They were nothing more than God's stenographers. We say these are the writings of the Paul, these are the writings of John, these are the writings of Samuel. No, these are the writings of God, and they happen to be the stenographers. If you take anything written by men and you spread it over 1,600 years, and you get 40-some different persons or authors, there's no way all of them will ever agree. But if there's one author, and that author is God, and he's inspired people over all those centuries, we're going to have something that agrees. He is the author. Okay? Two more references. Psalm 12 and verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. There is silver tried in furnace, purified seven times. We can count on it. In Proverbs 8, 8, all the words of my mouth are in righteousness, nothing forward or perverse in them. They do not have internal contradictions. If there's a contradiction, it's to your understanding. God promised he would preserve his word. Here's a couple verses here. Isaiah 30 and verse 8. This is talking to Isaiah. God said, go write it in a book, write it in a table before them, note it in a book that it may be for the time to come forever. I want you to document my word so it could be for people forever. And then Matthew five eighteen: till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or tittle shall pass from the law till all be fulfilled. God said he's going to protect and preserve his word. That's his promise. Y'all, we're a people that banks on God's promises. Amen? That's what we learned what faith was. A couple more references. Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. 
He said, it's going to be here. 1 Peter 1.25, the, the word of the Lord endureth forever. This is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. God said he will preserve his word forever. So that means here it is, over 2,000 years later, do we have God's word? God says. So I don't say if, I ask the question, where? That's how much confidence I have in God's word. Let me give you an example. Okay. I want to read this passage to you. If you have your Bibles, open it up with me. I know I was going through the other references very quickly. Go to Jeremiah 36. I'm going to start reading at verse 17. Here is a really neat story. It's a really neat story. This is in the time of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, who was one of God's prophets, was inspired by God. God spoke to him. The words were recorded on a scroll. And then what happened was there was a king, and that king hated God's word. And he took the original, and he took a penknife, and he went, and he cut up the original. And then he took the scraps, and he tossed it in the hearth. There goes the word of God. Notice what happened. God said he would preserve his word forever. Well, wait a second. We don't have the originals. God can take care of that. Amen? Amen. So I want to read this account. I'm going to go from 17, and we'll just see, probably to the end of the chapter. And they ask Barak, saying, Tell us now, how didst thou write all the words in his mouth? In other words, um, God inspired Jeremiah to speak. This man named Barak was his stenographer, and he wrote down the words. Then Barak, Barak, sorry, Barak answered, he pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Then said the princes to Barak, go hide thee, thou and Jeremiah, and let no man know where ye be. And they went into the king, into the court, but they laid upon the roll in the chamber of Elishama, the scribe, and told all the words in the ears of the king. And the king sent Jehudai to fetch the roll, and he took it out of Elishama, the scribe's chamber. And Jehudai read it in the ears of the king. And the ears of the king and all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudai had read three or four leaves, he cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Oh, oh Lord, you're in trouble now. You gave the word of God. It was written down, but someone burned it up. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after that the king had burned the roll and the words which Barak wrote in the mouth of Jeremiah saying, take thee again another roll and write it in all former words that were in the first roll and Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned. And thou shalt say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, thus saith the Lord, Thou hast burned this roll, saying, Why hast thou written therein, saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy his hand, and shall cause him to cease from these? So then we skip down to verse 32, and it says, Then took Jeremiah another roll, 
and gave it to Barak the scribe, the son of Neriah, and wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book. What God did was rewrote the original. God has done, preserved his words in a lot of different ways. This is just one of them. But God promised he would preserve his words. And I believe here in the 21st century, when he says he can preserve his words for all his children, I've got the confidence I can read this word and have his word today. Yeah, but you don't have the original. So what? I believe more in God's promises than in man's ability to keep God's promises. He will do it. That's my faith. Maybe it's a simple faith. But you know what? Maybe it's the childlike faith that we need to go on. And that's my faith. Satan truly hates God's word. He can't stand it. Okay? Genesis 3.1. This is his first trick. I jokingly call this the oldest trick in the book. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast which the Lord God had made and said, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of the tree of the garden. Satan's first tool is to cast out. Did God really say that? Just cast a little bit of doubt. We go to Matthew 4 and verse 6. This is a trick he used on Jesus Christ. He actually quoted scripture but he quoted it out of context. If thou be the son of God, cast down thyself, for it is written. For shall he shall give his angels charge concerning thee. They shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. He's actually quoting scripture. But you know what he's doing? He's using it out of context. He's not comparing with scripture, scripture, and getting a whole truth. That's what we have to do. Okay? Genesis 3, 4, we see where he actually denied God's word. The serpent said unto the woman, thou shalt not surely die. Emma pointed out something I was a preacher in Alabama did. He made a good statement, and I think it's a good summary of what actually happened here in Genesis 3. Satan wanted to kill Eve. Eve did not know it. She didn't understand what he was up to. But his mission was to kill Eve. So he denied the commandment, thou shall not surely die, put the doubt, denied the word of God. The result was the death of Adam and Eve. He succeeded in his mission. That's his goal. He's a destroyer. He's a liar. Okay? 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. He'll cast out. He'll change it. He'll question it. He'll deny it. We need to know his methods. Do you rely on scripture that much? I hope you do. Here's my example. In Revelations 12, 7 and 9, and there was a great, there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. Who's the great dragon? 
The dragon is that old serpent called the devil, Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. His tool is deception. His mission is death. His tool is deception. Don't be deceived. Bury yourself in God's word. Read it. Memorize it. Study it. Obey it. Submit to it. Breathe it. That's where the power comes from. Men will add to God's word. There's plenty of warnings of that. Matter of fact, that's one of the very first things that um, Eve did, but I'll get to there in a second. There's the warning here at the beginning of our Bible, Deuteronomy 4, 2. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it. Revelations 22, 18, almost the last verse in your Bible. If any man shall add unto these words, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written. God is jealous of his word, and it's his word, the whole word, and nothing but the word. And as soon as you add to it, you've changed his word. Okay? Genesis 3. Eve did something, and I kind of understand what she did. Now, the commandment was given, this is the God's fruit, and you're not supposed to eat of it. And she put a personal imposition on her, and she said, for me personally, in case I even get close to do it, I'm going to superimpose a condition on myself and don't even touch the tree. I get it. Don't touch the tree. Don't touch the tree so I won't eat it. Try to put an extra barrier. I get that. And it's okay for you to do that to yourself. But where it gets wrong, where you take that personal imposition and you put it on somebody else. Because God never commanded that. He never said that. So it's the same thing with um, uh, something else. Um, um, let, let's suppose you have a weakness towards um, um, overeating, right? So, so I'm never going to touch sweets. Well, that's okay. That, if that's the personal thing you put on yourself, that's great. But as soon as you lower it up and you, you put that requirement on other people, you've stepped over the boundary and you've done that, and that's when churches get in trouble. Okay? Genesis 3 3. Of the fruit of the tree in the midst, this is Eve speaking, ye shall not eat of it or touch it lest you die. Well, God didn't say that. God said, if you eat it, you're going to die. He never said, if you touch it, you're going to die. But she put that on herself, and I get that. That is okay. That's her prerogative. But when she forces that on someone else, you've crossed the line. Okay? And I'll tell you what. This is, this is, a, this is a step legalists have a trouble with. This is a step, here's a word I made up, the religionists have a problem. They've created things to try to protect their people. But again, there are laws that God never gave us. Okay? So we don't add to God's word. Colossians 2, 20 through 22. If ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, after the commandments and doctrines of men. These are all things men have put on. And then I've got a favorite passage here. This is one coming out of my roots of another order when I was a small boy. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. The Spirit speaketh expressly that some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirit, doctrines of devils, hypocritical lies, having their conscience seared, forbidding to marry, and abstaining from meats. Think about that. I grew up in an order 
or the priesthood were forbidden to marry. God never said that. Do you understand that? The ministry has a right to take a wife. The qualifications of a minister is to be the husband of one wife, right? Peter was married. Jesus healed his mother-in-law, right? And an order said, no, we're going to put this constraint on our priests because we want them really, really holy. Man, what a mess that has made. Do you understand when you help God by adding some extra things to be extra holy, you're going to turn your world upside down. And then I grew up. The law changed somewhere when I was in middle school or high school. But I was not allowed to eat meat on Friday. Every Friday. And then somewhere around middle school, it was just during the 40 days of Lent. But there was times where you know, just it was, we would go. Dad would go, and he'd get cheese pizza. Cheese pizza on Friday. That was our meal. Cheese pizza. And then all of a sudden, the rule came out and said, "Okay, you can eat meat on Fridays, just not the forty days of Lent." I go, "Yay, I can do." It. And then I realized, is that really a sin or is it not? Did God change or not? Where did that rule come from? Who gave the authority of the rule? Were they right before? Are they right after? Or are they allowed to change the rules midway through the program? Do you understand? Y'all, we got the word of God. And it doesn't change. I'm so happy for that. Okay? All right. Number five. God's word is our authority. Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. Meditate therein day and night. Observe to do all that there is written therein. Thou shalt make thy way prosperous and have good success. Now I know the 12 steps has done a lot of alcoholics a lot of good. I, I know it has. Okay? But this has done better. This will do better. Amen? Okay? 2 Timothy 2, 15 and 16. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And notice what it says right after that in verse 16. Shun profane and vain babblings. Every once in a while, I'll quote. And and I I do some reading. And I'll read other preachers, and I love... Some of the, like J.C. Philpot from the mid-1800s, I'll read his sermons every one. I like them. But you know what? Sometimes he'll have an insight or an explanation or he connect a relationship in the Old Testament that I can't put together, and I'm thankful for those writings. But I pray to God I never come in front of you and use that as my authority or I use that as my standard. And if I do, you got to ask me to step down. Do you understand? I want to share something with you. This happened a couple years ago. This is several years ago. There was a question about a, a, a practice, and that's all it was. It wasn't a doctoral thing. It was a practice in the church. And in, in the particular church that I was in, someone said, and says, well, that's not the way my pastor taught me. And then someone said, else said, well, that's not the way my pastor taught me. He taught me this way. 
then I took a survey of all the different ministers that baptized people in the church, right? So let's pretend we go through here and, um, you know, I look at myself and I know who baptized me and he's, he's from Georgia. And I know who baptized my wife. She was over there in Florida, right? And, and, and I know who, who, who baptized, uh, let's say, uh, who baptized Danny. And then I know who baptized, maybe it was the previous preacher that baptized you. And maybe it was the previous, previous preacher that baptized you. And there's my son over there, and I got to baptize him, and he buried a wife, and she was from Georgia, and that was a different preacher that baptized him. And all of a sudden we go, whoa, we got to figure out what truth is based on all what these pastors taught them. Do you understand what a ball of confusion that would be? Do you know how many different ministers are in the past? But if we come together, and this is our authority, we have half a chance of being in one accord. We will not be in one accord any other way. This is it. Okay? 2 Timothy 2, 4, 2 through 4. Preach the word, not a confession, not the writings, not commentaries. Go ahead, read them. But I hope when you read, you're reading this, 5 to 1 versus the other stuff. This is your authority. Be instant in season, out of season, reproof, rebuke, exhort with the authority of Scripture. They will not endure sound doctrine. They heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, turning away from truth unto fables. There's something about sheep that get enticed with something else. They get tired of eating in the meadow that the pastor would have them eat, and they just want to look at the grass in another No, eat this diet. 1 Timothy 4.16, Take heed to yourself and the doctrine. Continue in them. Save thyself and them that hear me. I got news for you. When I got ordained, I was given a vow to preach this word and only this word, and the day I decide to preach something else, I need to quietly step away. Y'all didn't take that vow. But I want you to understand, I took that vow. And when something else is brought up as a standard, what you're asking me to do is to step away from that vow. And I believe it was a godly vow. And I believe that's what this church stands for. And when we come up with any other authority and we quote any other source, we are usurping God's authority. This is serious stuff. It shouldn't be, but it is, okay? 2 Corinthians 1, 19 and 20, Jesus was preached among Silvanus and Timothy and myself. For all the promises of God are in him are yea, not yea and nay. Now, I did some summarizing there. That's paraphrase. But God's word will never be yes and no. I know, Brother Danny, how can we always say it depends, right? Well, it is steady. Just our circumstances are unusual, and sometimes things apply, and sometimes they don't. God's words doesn't change, okay? Number six, God's word is our curriculum. 
I want you to know something here. <clears throat> okay, in Proverbs 29 and 18, this is a verse that we always quote the first half. The verse says, where there is no, there is no vision, where the, the people perish. Okay, where there is no vision, the people perish. What's the vision? The second half of the verse says the vision is God's word. Do you understand? What if I had a vision for the church and Richard had a vision for the church and Danny had a vision for the church and Brian had a vision for the church and Graham and Andrew, we all had visions for the church. Well, we got a vision, but what's the vision? The vision is God's word. Amen? Okay, in Jeremiah 6.16, you've heard this one a lot. Ask for the old paths. Where is the good way and walk therein? Did you know what? The word of God is our old path. That's it. Because again, I already told you that, you know how many different pastors are represented by the different baptisms just in this congregation? Is that the old paths? Amen? Okay. God's line. Amos 7, 8, we covered this on Wednesday night. God's word is our plumb line. I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people. In other words, God is talking about Israel a couple hundred years ago, actually a couple thousand years ago. And he says, you know what? I'm looking at this congregation, Israel, and I'm walking the way you're behaving, and I'm taking God's word and a plumb line as a piece of string with a weight on the end, and gravity makes it a straight to tell you if you're up or down. And he says, I'm walking in the midst of your congregation and I'm homing up this plumb line to see if you're straight up, up and down. Anyone want to guess what the plumb line is? It's the word of God, right? That's what we use. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, God is our wisdom. We trust in all our heart. Lean not to thine own understanding. So God's word is our vision. It's our old path. It's our plumb line. It's our wisdom. No room for Oprah. No room for a convention, whether it happened in the 1600s, in the 1800s, or in the 21st century. No room for that. That's it. Romans 10, 1 through 3. Here were some Israelites. And Paul was really jealous of these Israelites. And, 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 and he's been converted from Judaism. And he is now a Christian. And he's talking to this church, and this church was full of ex-Jewish people, and they had Jewish friends. And he's writing about this people, and he said that my prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. My prayer is that they might be born again. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I bear them record. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They love the Lord. And they want to obey the Lord. They're just doing it ignorantly. You know why they're doing it ignorantly? They're following men and not scripture. They, being ignorant of God's righteousness, go about to establish their own righteousness and not have submitted themselves unto God. I get tired of the Bible. Those old commandments, they're just old-fashioned Amen? That's what they were saying. What's something new? What's something different? No, it's God's word. God's word is timeless. 
God's word is our only standard. I want to read you these. In Acts 17, 11, the Thessalonians received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. And, and I always stress this. Y'all, this was the Apostle Paul who was handpicked by God to be an apostle, to be an eyewitness of the resurrection, to write most of the New Testament. He wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. He planted churches. He had sons in the ministries. He committed them to scripture. And you know what? He was preaching a message. And here were some people hearing Paul preached. And you know what he did? He commended them because they challenged his preaching and they measured against the plumb line of scripture. And he wasn't defensive. He wasn't insulted. He wasn't embarrassed. He was saying, thank God, because if I do make a mistake, you point it out, you scripture to point it out to me, and hopefully I'll correct my path. Y'all, this is what we need to be in. Not I think, I feel, or the way I grew up. The Bible is our standard. 1 Corinthians 2.13, we speak not in man's wimpsome, but the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. Y'all, this is what we compare spiritual, this is the spiritual things we compare things. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, prove all things, hold fast which is good. This is what we prove it against. 1 John 4.1, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. What do we try them against? We try them against God's word. Amen? In Acts 15, please turn there with me. Here's the last reference I've got for today. I love this account. And I think you've probably heard this from me before. This is really, really important. Really early on in the church, there was a question. And the question was, should we or should we not allow Gentiles into our New Testament church? And some people said, yes, we should let them in. Let's baptize them and let them be full-fledged members. And there was some ex-Jews that says, no, we got to circumcise them. And then we can baptize them, and then they could be full-fledged members. So we go back as early as Acts 10. And Paul shows up in a man's house named Cornelius. God says, go to Cornelius and preach to him. And Paul says, this guy is an Italian soldier. He's a Gentile. And he says, God, I don't think I'm supposed to do that. And God says, go preach to him. And Paul says, okay, but I'm taking with me seven witnesses. Because when my Jewish friends find out, I'm going to get in trouble. So he preaches to him, and there was a great revival. And, and, and these people that were just, just had fruits of the Spirit just flowing out of them, heard the gospel, they submitted to it, they got baptized. It was a wonderful time. And then Paul, word gets back to Jerusalem, and they go to chapter 11, and there's a Donnybrook. Amen? There's a Donnybrook. And then they go out and they have another meeting. And this meeting is recorded in Acts 15. And they're still arguing about the same thing. Can Gentiles join the New Testament church? But do they need to be circumcised? So when you read this account, <coughs> let's uh, start up here in verse 7. I'm in Acts 15 and verse 7. 
And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, men and brethren, ye know how that we had a good while ago had a God made a choice. And basically what happened was, is Peter said, he said, God spoke to me. He told me to go to Gentiles. I preached to them. They responded to the gospel. Their response was just like Pentecost. So I baptized them. And then we come down here a little bit further down to verse 12. And we get to Paul. Paul and Barnabas have been out preaching. Then all the audience, multitude gave silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul declaring what miracles. And they shared their experience. Okay? You got that? And then we get down to verse 13. And after they had held their peace, James answered and said, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simon had declared how God at first did visit the Gentiles. But notice what he does in verse 15. He says, To this agree the words of the prophet, it is written. Peter gave his experience. Paul gave his experience. And James quotes scripture. And he says, this is exactly how it laid out. And he's quoting Amos 9, 11, and 12. So what they do is we come all the way down here and we come down to verse 23. And you know what this group of New Testament, stay with me, this is important. This New Testament preachers do? They write letters and they send it all over the Mediterranean. And they say, the brethren have gotten together and it's okay to let Gentiles be members of your New Testament churches without being circumcised. And here's these letters all over the place. Okay, this is the best part. Let's fast forward and let's go to Galatia. And in Galatians 2, they're having the same old fight. Should Gentiles be allowed in the New Testament church and be heaven bound without being circumcised. And you know who has an argument? Peter and Paul, the first two guys that gave their experiences here in Acts 15. And if Paul ever had the right to slap down an article written by men, it would have been right there. Paul, we settled this decades ago. Your signature's on the thing. We got this document. Knock it off. But not once does Paul make reference to that letter. You know what his authority is? Guess. It was scripture. If there was ever a time to pull the punch of a confession, this was the second London confession. No, the second Jerusalem confession. Okay? If there was ever a time to pull the second Jerusalem confession, it was here and he didn't use it. He used the word of God. Y'all, that is our authority. It's our only authority. But you know what else? It's our power and it's our only power. I grew up, and again, in a different order. And one of the things that helped, there was a lot of things that helped convert me, but one of the things was prayer. We prayed to saints. We prayed to Mary. And this is another one of my reasoning. Why? Now, this is me as a young guy, early convert, so I'm still... 
probably haven't matured that much, but I'm still thinking kind of goofy sometimes. Why would I go through the second run when I can go to the head honcho? Why would I do that? What's the same thing with the Word of God? Why would I go to the second level when I go to the head honcho? Why would I do that? Y'all, we got the Word of God. People have died for the Word of God. There was a time in the dark ages, by owning the Word of God, it could get you killed. And we live in a country where the change in the ashtray of your car can buy you a copy of God's Word. Do you realize how blessed we are? We don't treat it like we're blessed. Maybe, maybe if we had before the, uh, the, the advent of the printing press, I don't know, just think how much money you make in two months. Think of your salary for two months. That's how much a cop of a word, God's word was, two months wages. Maybe you would treat God's word a little more precious if it cost you that much. If you actually saved up that for two months to get a cop, you're going to read that, right? So may the Lord bless us. We've, we're so incredibly blessed. Not only did he send his son down to die for us, but he recorded all those events in a book, and we have those events. And he preserved them and he protected them for us to read and to, to comfort ourselves. God bless you. Thank you.